0: Man, if you're kindly able, if you'd remain standing to honor God's word, this morning it comes to us from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 7. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, good morning. good morning. Welcome to those who are participating online, worshiping with us. We're so grateful that for your presence, that you are with us this day. We are continuing a series of sermons that we have called, this I know, Profound truths of a simple hymn. Uh, this morning we are going to be looking at the phrase little ones to him belong. Let us pray. Oh Lord, these words are yours and thus it is you who should speak them. Do that, we pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit and so may our minds and hearts be open and receptive to Hear your eternal word, your word that does not change. Amen. You know, our society seems to be fascinated by the question, who is the greatest? Ubiquitous debates can be found online, in the media, arguing over who is the greatest, the greatest sports star, um, the greatest at each position throughout history. We, We have come to call these people the GOAT. They are the GOAT of their position, the greatest of all time. They say, they mention people like Tom Brady. He is the GOAT of all quarterbacks, or Michael Jordan, the GOAT of basketball. Muhammad Ali claimed that he was the greatest of all time. It's not just sports, it's also politics. We love ranking and discovering and debating who is the greatest. Who is the greatest president of all time, we, we say. Lists are made, debates ensue. We want to know who is the greatest. I, I did a dangerous thing this, this past week. I, I actually looked this up on the internet. I wanted to find out who is the greatest of all time. And there is a list and apparently the greatest humans of all time. Apparently, people have weighed in on this, and so this is all of us, and this is a collective, and again, this is the internet, which is always true, but they came up with a list, the top 10 greatest humans of all time. Now, thankfully, and I'm so thankful for this, number one greatest human of all time listed was Jesus. Amen? That's wonderful. Sometimes we human beings do get some things right. Jesus is number one. Uh, But then the list gets really interesting. After that, number two greatest human being of all time, Martin Luther King. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Number three, Albert Einstein. Uh, Number four, Muhammad the prophet. Then Abraham Lincoln. Gandhi, Buddha, Moses. Nelson Mandela, number nine. Number ten, are you ready for it? Michael Jackson is number (laughs) ten. Wow. He came in just a little ahead of Leonardo da Vinci. It's very interesting. Clearly a flawed list. There isn't a woman to be found on this list. And anyone worth the salt knows that it, the first 10, 15 are all women, the greatest human beings of all time. So this is deeply flawed. But it raises the question, what and how, how do we measure human greatness? How do we measure? We, we want to, we're fascinated by this. And wouldn't it be wonderful to hear someone say about us, you know, they're really great. What's the measure of human greatness. How we answer this question has both personal and cultural relevance. In our gospel text this morning we read that the disciples came to Jesus and they asked who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Mark records this story also in his gospel, but he gives us a little more information. He tells us that prior to this question of Jesus, the disciples had actually been arguing about which one of them was the true goat of the disciples. <laughs> They'd been arguing about this, and there was some internal strife. But they come to Jesus and say, well, who's the greatest in your kingdom? Now, notice something important here. Jesus teaches frequently about his kingdom, you cannot read through the Gospels without hearing him teaching about the coming kingdom, the kingdom that's arrived, the, the new kingdom that's being established. All of this kingdom talk. His kingdom is here. It is alive. It is present now. It has been ushered in. And like all kingdoms, it has structure. It has hierarchy. And so it is not an unnatural or forbidden question to ask in your kingdom which has hierarchy lord who is higher who is greater who is lesser and it is interesting jesus does not rebuke them for asking i mean he could have easily said what a dumb question you know you don't even know what you're asking jesus had said that before you don't even know what you're asking you could have said he doesn't. He seems to take this question at face value. Who is the greatest in your kingdom? And he he, he doesn't say to them, Oh, 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 in my kingdom, actually everyone's the same. He doesn't say everyone's equal. He's gonna tell us who is greater in his kingdom. There are some that are greater and some that are lesser. The first four verses that I read tell us what true greatness in Jesus' kingdom is, what greatness looks like, and how to get it. And Jesus answered this question by calling over a child. Think about these disciples surrounding, saying, you know, who's the greatest, Jesus? And he says, come here. He looks beyond them, and he sees a child, and he says, we come here he pulls this young child forward, maybe he has his arms here around this child in a warm embrace. And he looks at him fondly, this child or her, and says, Truly I tell you, unless you, disciples, unless you change and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. With that answer, Jesus gives the most counterintuitive, upside down understanding of human greatness that has ever been enunciated. Whoever lowers himself or herself is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. Whoever lowers goes down is the greatest. It goes against everything we've come to understand. We think those who are most gifted, most talented, most wealthy, most famous, the ones who've been elevated. We've always put it the greatest, and Jesus says, no, the greatness comes by those who willingly humble and say, no, I don't want that. I'm not going to have that. I'm going to choose to be low like a child. True greatness means you are like this child. Now, this is an analogy it doesn't mean that you are like this child in every way. Let's be honest. Children are wonderful, but sometimes, <laughs> right? Jesus is not being literal here. This is an analogy. He says, I want you to lower yourselves like a child. Um, what does he mean by this? Well, children have, one, one of the meanings of this is that children have a total lack of of grasp of social status. They just don't see it. They don't know it. When they walk into a room, they're not going to say she's great or he's great. Everyone is on equal footing with children. They don't have the same sense of dignity that adults have. They will stoop to do things that adults would never do. They will walk right up to the Queen of England without any sense of who she is or how you should relate to her. They don't know. Everyone is treated equally. Jesus says, the greatest in my kingdom is someone willing, choosing, to be humble. They may have been given. They may have all kinds of resources. They may have all kinds of giftedness, but they have made a decision to climb down and lower themselves. Someone willing to be humble, someone choosing to serve others, someone willing to say, You take the seat of honor, you go in front, you go first. Jesus is saying that's what true greatness looks like humility. This response and this definition of greatness turn much of the first century debate and our debate on its head. He does not dismiss greatness as something that should not be desired, but he gives us an entirely different way to find it and to achieve it. He transforms the disciples in our understanding of true greatness. The way to be first in Christ's kingdom is to be the last of all and the servant of all. It is to put others' needs before ourselves, to not think of ourselves as above any task that might be seen as trivial or lowly. Greatness is achieved through humility. Spurgeon said this, Charles Spurgeon said, this is the only way to get to the front of Christ's army. He who would be chief must always be aiming at the rear rank willing to do the most humble service and to be the lowest menial in the mass in his master's service only in this way can we rise in Christ's kingdom the way to go up is to go down sink self and you shall surely rise the ones who willingly go down humble themselves do the tasks the the difficult things that everyone else says I would never do that Christ lifts them up to great position. Greatness in his kingdom. Now we live in a culture obsessed with fame, with achieving greatness, something to grasp and to hold on to and to get so that we can look down on others or lord it over others. But Jesus explains that We will find true greatness only through serving others. In our interactions with other people, our first question should be, how can I best serve this person? And Jesus says, I want you to look at this child. Look at how they operate. But later on in this passage, Jesus will kind of change the terminology a little bit. He says, he, he doesn't mention children, he says little ones. He refers to them as little ones. Now, you might think that this is a synonym, but not quite. When Jesus talks about welcoming these little ones, the Greek word for little ones is anyone who is weak, poor, marginalized. People at the bottom of the social ladder. People who are great in his kingdom are the ones who quietly serve, who bring alongside and come alongside those who are weak, who are poor, who are marginalized, those without home, those trying to build a better life, now, this teaching could easily and often be seen as sentimental. Sometimes we do this. We, we sing this song, Jesus loves me this, so I know, little ones to him belong. And we sentimentalize it and we think, oh, well, that means that Jesus was, you know, he was just a really meek and he was one of those adults that children just liked. He was one of those adults, you know those adults, I... You know, we envy them a little bit. The one that just naturally in a room, the children just fly on his lap and her lap. That's, we might sentimentalize this a little bit to say, well, maybe that's what we sing and that's what Jesus was like. Little ones to him belong. He liked little children. But really what Jesus is doing is remarkable. It's revolutionary. He's turning our understanding of greatness upside down. He's actually upending the whole social order. This teaching has great social impact. It teaches us to not look down on people, but to serve them, to willingly become a nobody. If we were, as a society, to follow this teaching, it would have great implications in how our society works. Tim Keller points out there was an article written a few years ago in the New York Times that was fascinating. It was written by a a secular sociologist, and he, he had been studying how the Ivy League schools were formed. Princeton, Yale, Harvard. And he was talking about from their founding how much change has happened until today. At their founding, these elite schools were founded by mostly Puritans, Puritan Christians. Sometimes we think of Puritans as being, you know, stuffy or rigid, um, but they were also doggedly, doggedly determined to instill humility into their whole being. They, they were determined to say about humanity, about you and I, that that we really shouldn't think too much of ourselves, that we were deeply flawed. And so, when the Ivy League schools were started, they brought in smart students into these universities and they were teaching them and trying to instill them the greatest knowledge but at the same time they were also telling them don't for a second think that you came here on your own merit whatever got you to this place was a gift you're not a big deal it was a complete gift that you have these abilities and these talents and so Given that, and it kept being instilled in them, instilled, you ought to use this learning to do societal good. Gifts are meant to be given away. And that's wonderful. So the sociologist is looking at this saying, you know, that has changed now. Now, in these Ivy League schools, you are taught you're elite. The fact that you're here means you are elite, you are above, and that'll follow you the rest of your life. And the consequence is you're looking down on those who aren't there, not serving them. And this secular sociologist was saying, we got to figure out a way as secular people to get that back. (laughs) Well, we know how to get it back. It's called the gospel. You see, what Jesus is teaching here isn't just kind of polite niceties. He's teaching us how to have a good, well-functioning society. A society doesn't function well when you have an elite class that is constantly thumbing their nose and not giving a hoot about those beneath them. A good society is when an elite class is sharing and lifting up and giving and serving and therefore there is no elite class anymore. Those with talent share. Those with resources give. That's what Jesus is teaching here. A society can really flourish when it takes these principles in hand. But Jesus is not just for societal benefit, but it's also for personal enhancement as well. He's teaching us this as a way for you and I to find true joy and happiness. If I'm constantly needing attention and praise so that other people around me will say, well, you know, he's really great, my life is gonna be filled with strife and tension and worry and stress. And I'm gonna need more and more and more of it. That's what the disciples were doing. They were looking around going, who's better, who's better, who's better, who's better, and worried about it. And it was creating internal disharmony. This past week, I had a meeting with a pastor. I met with him. I had not met him before, but we arranged for coffee, and he was wonderful, and we were sitting there. And in the midst of our conversation, he mentioned that this certain theologian, writer that has had a great influence on him. And before he finished his sentence, I said to him, Well, I interrupted him, and I said, Well, you, you, I need to tell you something. He was my professor in college, and um, I, I know him, and he was a mentor to me. And we continued our conversation. And this, that was all true, by the way. And I was leaving, driving away, thinking about this passage. And the Holy Spirit began to speak. And I'd love to tell you what the Holy Spirit said, but it wasn't very nice. (laughs) (laughs) The Spirit said, why did you do that? Why did you say those words to him? What were you trying to accomplish? I wanted this pastor to think I was somebody. I wanted him to think that I was actually a real somebody he ought to look up to. Why? Because I was next to somebody, and I knew somebody, and, and I do that. Why? I mean, I need, why do I need that praise and that attention? I didn't need, that didn't add anything to our conversation. I'm not proud of that. You know, it's like if I walked into a room, imagine there was a room of about 30 people. And I was in this room, and suddenly walking into that room, Tiger Woods walked into that room. Can you imagine what everybody would do? Tiger Woods comes into the room. Everyone, you know, especially if you're a golfer, you would have been starstruck. We'd be like, wow, Tiger Woods is in the room with us. But imagine for a minute if after 10 minutes in that setting, I began to tell people, yeah, Tiger Woods, great golfer. But hear me out. In high school, I played on the golf team. I did. I was um, second team honorable mention. Did you know this? I was. And what if I began to ask people and kind of demand, I need a little of the attention. I should be getting some of this praise, right? Imagine if I was in a room and there's about 30 people and musicians and, and the like, and in walks Johann Sebastian Bach, Right? He walks into the room, and everyone, oh, wow. But you know, after about 10 minutes of this, I start to think, well, wait a minute. And I tell people, you know, you need to know. I mean, I'm not a bad musician myself. (laughs) I mean, I had a bell solo once at the church. (laughs) I didn't miss a note. (sighs) Nailed it. I mean, think about how absurd that would be. Think about how on an infinitely greater level, infinitely greater level, how much bigger Jesus is. How much more awesome than Tiger Woods or Bach. Imagine being in his kingdom and saying to people, yeah, but you know, I need a little of that attention. I deserve a little bit of that praise. Do you see what's going on here? At no point should we ever, ever draw any attention away from him to ourselves. He's that great. He's that wonderful. He's that amazing. And every time I demand and ask that people look at me, I'm inadvertently, I don't know I'm doing this, but I am, I'm drawing their attention away from him, and he is the greatest in God's kingdom. He is the greatest. And he's so great. Why? Because he served. Because he sacrificed. Because he gave up everything, taking the lowest form. The Bible says that when one sinner repents, they throw a party in heaven, laughter and joy. And what that means is when one sinner, when you and I say to God, I'm so tired of needing all this praise and, and accolade, and I, I'm so tired of this, Lord, and help me, and I want to serve, and I want to give, I don't need this attention anymore, you are great. That's what repen- part of what repentance is, to say, Lord, I'm tired of this, I've been doing this, I'm wrong. When we do that, when we lower ourselves, heaven erupts and says, you're getting it, yay! They start cheering. see, friends, there are great, great people in this room right now. Great. But they're not telling us they're great. And they're doing quiet, humble things. Unnoticed. But in heaven, they're cheering. And that's so wonderful. I love this passage because it's so democratic. I don't care what has happened to you in your life. I don't, it doesn't matter what your giftedness is, what your talents are. Maybe something terrible's happened to you. Maybe you've been through a lot. Well, guess what, today you can make a choice to be great. That's the good news of the gospel. You can make a choice to serve and to give anonymously and to sacrifice and heaven will erupt in cheering applause and say wonderful, well done because you will start acting the way Jesus acted. And our challenge in his kingdom is to become little Christ's. That's what he loves and wants. Little ones to him belong. It's not for the proud. He loves the weak. He loves the humble. He gathers them around. And he asks you and I to welcome them, to be on the same level, and to serve. When former presidents of the United States come to New York City, they stay at the Waldorf. There's a presidential suite um, designed for them at the Waldorf, but um, not Jimmy Carter. And I know when I say Jimmy Carter, There's political ramifications. Some of you don't think, or we have images of him, whatever his politics are, but but hear me out. Whatever else is going on here, a former president is elite, right? They have that for life. Jimmy Carter stayed at the Harlem YMCA. (laughs) That gesture says a great deal, I think, about his humility, more than words. In 1984, when Jimmy and Rosalind Carter first came to New York City to work, for Habitat. They rode on a bus, a Greyhound bus with everyone. Um, they arrived from Plains, Georgia. They came in, under the Lincoln Tunnel. There was a big sign that said, Welcome President and Mrs. Carter. Um, there wasn't a big ceremony, but they went directly to the church that was going to be their home, and they were going to work on building a house for the poor. And the pastor of the church came right up to him and said, President Carter, we do have a men's dormitory and a women's dormitory over there, but we're not going to ask you to stay there, obviously. You're president. Um, So we have fixed a presidential suite for you. It's all decked out with your own private bathroom. Um, We've been working on it all week. It's all set for you. But President Carter stopped and he said, wait, wait, time out. He thanked the pastor and he said, listen, this is a great honor you've given me. I'm grateful. But you know, on this bus ride into New York City, we've we're talking to a young couple that was on the bus with us and we got talking to them and found out that they were just married yesterday afternoon. They're on their honeymoon. They used their honeymoon money for the opportunity to build houses for poor people. Would you please allow me to let this wonderful young couple use the presidential suite and turn it into a honeymoon suite? We'll stay in the dorms. And everybody began to cheer. He set aside the prerogatives of the office. He had a right to it. But I don't think he was thinking status at that moment. I really believe he was thinking kingdom. Friends, most of us were brought up to expect others to serve us. It's like in our DNA and it seems so normal and natural to be served by our spouse, by our parents, by our employer, by our government, by our church. We don't want to join a church that requires us to serve. We want to join a church that serves our needs, our tastes, and our views. And sometimes that's hard to admit. But what if we were to be a church that welcomed everyone, the poor, the weak, and served? What if status meant nothing to a community of people? What if our great joy was to welcome and serve others as your pastor I look out and I see greatness in this congregation it's wonderful Jesus says we have an opportunity to be great we can willingly choose to be little to be humble and little ones belong to him Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are here in our midst and you are calling us to greatness. Mostly we thank you that you modeled that so well for us. You gave, you served, you loved. We wanna be little Christs and do likewise, Father. We pray for the strength of your Holy Spirit.